Tonight, we are beginning a new mini-series in our move through 1 Corinthians, and we've called um, this series simply Warning. Okay? Um, and what we're going to be looking at for the next few weeks are these hidden dangers in the Christian life. Um, if I can just make an observation about warning signs, there's always two implications that lie behind any time you encounter a warning sign. The first is that there's some sort of imminent danger. That's why there's no signs in Seattle that say warning polar bears. Okay? There is such a thing as a polar bear. They're just very far away from here. Okay? So warnings always mean something that's actually a threat, something that's nearby. And the second thing is they generally mean a hidden danger, one that isn't self-evident. Okay? So we never put signs next to oceans that say warning water is wet because it's self-evident. Okay? Um, but if a floor that is usually not wet because it's a floor and not the ocean is wet, then we put out a sign warning people of the unexpected, okay? And so the warnings we're going to be looking at are, in that sense, hidden dangers, both imminent but usually not thought about or seen that are a part of the Christian life. Um, Now, as we roll into this, it's worth noting that 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where we'll be tonight, is mid-argument. Paul's already talking about something, and this is really just his final Uh, final point in his argument this last chapter and so it's helpful before we begin to kind of understand the bigger issue that's going on in the church in Corinth. Um, First Corinthians is a letter in a uh, in a back and forth correspondence between a church and the Apostle Paul who started the church Um, and in this particular part of the letter he's dealing with a question the Corinthians have asked about a particular behavior. The question was a a simple one, basically, is it okay for Christians to do this or not? And the topic of concern specifically was involving food offered to idols. You see, in the first century world in the city of Corinth, there were lots of pagan temples. There was no division between church and state. And so much of what it meant to just be a participant in society, to join uh, and be a part of a guild, to attend a wedding or even a funeral, was inherently religious. And so it happened in the temple courts, which were the largest rentable spaces. Um, The food at those banquets was first offered to the patron god of the temple and then served to the guest. And so what happened was people in the church in Corinth were coming to differing conclusions on if this was something they could still participate in. And for some, they were saying, look, we know that an idol is nothing, that there's only one god, uh, and so eating this food isn't really eating anything that's been dedicated to an other god, just a false god. On top of that, they said, we aren't, uh, we aren't in any danger of going back to our pagan backgrounds. We know our standing in Christ. And then, um, on the other hand, there were others who, who probably used to attend those same pagan festivals Uh, used to even worship the gods of those temples and also engaged in all of the fringe practices related to those offerings and those worships, which often involved things like sexual immorality, um, drunkenness, etc. And so they're looking at it and going, no, that's who I was. That's where I came from. That's what I repented from. There's, I shouldn't be in that place. No Christian should be in that place. And so they write to Paul simply to just say, yes or no, Paul, can we do it or not? And before Paul gives an answer, he spends some time going, you're not even thinking about this question in the right way. Your simple determination of if you can do this is, can I do it, yes or no? And he says, instead, I want you to think about it in the context of, is it beneficial for the people in my community? Is it loving to flaunt my rights or my freedoms in a way that actually enslaves other people, in a way that puts other people in danger? And so he lays these things out, and that's where we've been for the last few weeks. But as he moves into chapter 10, he pivots, and he starts to answer the question directly. He, he starts to go underneath, and so first he says, you're thinking about it wrong, and he deals with that. He gives us a great example of how to process um, ethics and behaviors, gray issues, and places that aren't directly talked about in Scripture as Christians. But where he gets into tonight is the hidden dangers that those who in the church identified as strong, strong enough to do this with no result, strong enough to participate without consequence, 
uh, the hidden dangers that they seem completely unaware of in this. Um, to, to spoil where we're going in the next few weeks, he's going to come out and clearly and say, just don't do it. There's no good reason for you to do this. I do not want you to participate in this. But he's not there yet. Right now, he just is, like I said, um, diagnosing what's missing. And what we're going to discover as we look at the passage tonight is that Paul's simple answer is, you wouldn't be asking this question if you read your Bible. And so he looks back to the Old Testament and he says, have you learned nothing from all that the Bible says? Can't you consider what you already know about human nature according to the Bible and see how that's playing out here? And the first hidden danger that we're going to look at tonight is simply labeled presumption. What he says is the strong who were so comfortable doing these things, who had no qualms or things, they were basing all of this on a very dangerous presumption. So tonight, let's look at this together. It'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you have a Bible, feel free to open up there. If you're in need of a Bible tonight, in the back of the pew right in front of you, you should see an ESV Bible. It's the black one. If you use the index in the front, you'll find 1 Corinthians in the New Testament. And once again, we'll be in chapter 10. Now, if you're not very familiar with the Old Testament, we're going to touch on quite a bit of content tonight that we don't have time to do anything more than tell you the short version of the story. Um, If you're the type who likes to study more deeply, I'll hit the chapter references along the way, um, and you can can read specifically in the book of Exodus and Numbers another time. Um, But but we'll have a sufficient amount um, to get Paul's point tonight. What I'd like to do right now is read through verses 1 through 11 in chapter 10. Then we'll pray and we'll um, take a closer look. Paul says here in verse 1, For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Let's pray. Father, especially because this text helps us to understand how to understand the Bible, how to understand what it's for. I pray for your help tonight. Um, Paul starts this by saying, I want you to know, and so I pray that we would know. I ask that you would help us to know and to understand and to see ourselves in the light of this text tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we actually look at the argument that Paul is making and deal with this hidden danger of presumption, it's helpful here to recognize the way that Paul reads the Old Testament. And the reason that I say it's helpful for us is because it's a very good practice to learn to read the Bible like the authors of the Bible read the Bible, right? So here's Paul the Apostle in the New Testament who's reading in front of us with us looking over his shoulder the Old Testament, and we can learn from that. If I can put it in an even more profound sense, the best way to learn to read Scripture is from Scripture, okay? And so we have the advantage tonight of not just getting into the issue, but helping us put on a proper pair of spectacles, answer the question of how to read the Bible. And so notice he says first in verse 6, now these things, the things that he's talking about from the book of Exodus and Numbers, these things took place as examples for us. Okay? And then he repeats it again in verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, 
but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Okay. Now, I want to just lay out there because it's an important uh, important uh, reason that Paul doesn't mention why you should read the Old Testament. Because if we're honest with ourselves tonight, you may be able very quickly to understand and resonate with major portions of the New Testament. If you're reading a letter, what we call an epistle like 1 Corinthians, it's written to a church. After Jesus has come, died, buried, resurrected, after the Spirit has given, food sacrificed to idols is clearly a difference, but a church that gathers on Sunday for the study of the Word, for the worship of God, uh, that seeks to carry the message known as the gospel to the ends of the earth, this stuff is relatively familiar. Okay? The culture, the context may differ, but there's a lot of overlap for us there. But when we read the Old Testament, the distance seems so much further. Um, not only because we're dealing not with the church, but the nation of Israel, but also when we look at, um, at the God of the Old Testament and the general life of the um, Old Testament saint, it's incredibly different, right? We open up our Old Testament and it's chock full of incredibly present, um, what, what scholars used to call a theophany, right? And so he mentions here a cloud and a pillar of fire that is God present visibly and tangibly, right? And you read about Mount Sinai and the law, uh, the law is given and there's a mountain covered in smoke and the voice like thunder and all of these things. There's the mir miracles like the crossing of the Red Sea and the... Um, uh, women who were barren being over the age of giving, uh, having children at all, suddenly having children. And especially when, you're, when you recognize that the Old Testament covers thousands of years of history, but when we read it and it's focusing in on these things, it feels like that was a daily event. Like a miracle was far from miraculous before Jesus came because it was just normal. It was like milkman, miracle, lunch. That was just how days went. Um, on top of that, on top of that, what we see in the Old Testament, especially in passages like this, where there's a tremendous amount of direct consequence for sin, where there's the destruction of places like Sodom and Gomorrah, or 23,000 in a day dying, it can feel incredibly distant, maybe even, um, maybe even barbaric, right, in, in the sense of being ancient and, and uncivilized. Um, but... There are good reasons to read the Old Testament, and the first one that I wanted to mention is not one that Paul mentions, but it's important, okay? The Old Testament gives us the context for the New Testament, okay? That's why even when you read the Gospels and they're trying to explain who Jesus is, they're constantly quoting from the Old Testament, okay? Because Jesus and his ministry was foretold. It was expected, in fact, Paul, in this passage and in other places, even says that in the Old Testament it was foreshadowed, meaning that everything that Israel did was like a symbolic uh, reenactment of what was to happen in Jesus Christ. And so it was visible and tangible to teach them what to expect about Jesus' coming. In fact, if you try and read the Old Testament on its own, it's a relatively dissatisfying experience. Because there's a lot of promises that are left unfulfilled. And there's a lot of tensions that are left unresolved. And there's a lot of questions that are left unanswered. And so the New Testament is really the answer and the fulfillment and the resolution of much of where the Old Testament is going. In fact, even just beginning in the book of Genesis, a good deal of what Genesis does is just tell us, tells us what's wrong with the universe that God is seeking to fix in Jesus. Okay? And so that's one good reason, and I'll give you another very closely related one. You know how if you're watching a modern television show or reading a novel, it doesn't just stay in the timeline, right? It, it goes backwards. You get a flashback, uh, or you get the backstory of a character, okay? Now, why do we do that? We do that because it helps us to understand why the character does what he does, Right? It gives us a larger context because there's a good deal of who we are as human beings that isn't on display, even though it directly impacts our current actions. Okay? And so the Old Testament provides a tremendous amount of backstory, and a simple reason to read it is because Old Testament and New alike proclaims that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
that the God of the Old Testament is the self-same God who loves you and sent his son to die for you, that the God of the Old Testament who's so visible and present and speaks and proclaims in these types of things, that is also who God is. And so in the same way that uh, when we get to know somebody in a relationship, we don't just settle for what did you do yesterday, but how did you grow up? What was your schooling like? These types of things. In the same way, when we read the Old Testament, it helps us to understand who God is. And a lot of times, it provides shade and even depth to the character of God as presented in the New Testament. Okay? Now, on top of that, beyond that, Paul gives us another reason tonight. And he says that these things were written down in verse 11. I'll read it again. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction okay so why was the old testament written down paul says very specifically it was written down for our instruction there's a purpose in it and specifically he labels it in examples but there's something that we can easily miss that paul clarifies tonight in general especially if you've grown up in the church and gone through sunday school in general the idea that the old testament is full of examples is not new But the way that Paul means it here is tremendously novel. Because the way that we generally encounter the Old Testament stories uh, are are be-like stories. They're example stories in the sense of, you should be like Moses. You should be like Abraham. You should be like Isaiah. Okay. Now, it's not that there aren't positive examples in the Old Testament, but I want you to notice that Paul's example he presents tonight is entirely and solely a negative one. And there's a reason why that doesn't always come across if you're children in Sunday school. It's because the negative examples presented in the Old Testament are a little bit adult for Sunday school, right? It's because the things that, uh, that these so-called heroes like Abraham or David do uh, are not appropriate to tell children about. And so we get a bleached version of the story and then a misunderstanding of the story's purpose, Okay? If you read the Old Testament closely, it's very rare to find a single cor- character who comes out smelling like a rose. There are very few paragons of virtue, and the ones that we can uphold are usually the ones that so little is said about that it's an unfair gauge. Okay? What you find instead is what Paul presents here, that the examples given of mankind show us what's wrong with human beings, and the reason it's valuable to us is because we happen to be human beings. Okay. Now, um, this is not just Paul's perspective. Even if you read the Psalms, and here's, here's where the homework comes in. Uh, they're too long for us to just sit down and read tonight, and the content is so similar, it's not worth it. But Psalm 78 and Psalm 106 effectively communicate the same message through the same stories as we're reading tonight. Okay, so the psalmist Uh, The Psalms, if you will, this hymnal of Israel, this book that gave them the the words for their worship, both private and public. Twice, it walks through Israel's history, and the primary point they're trying to make is that Israel has traditionally been unfaithful, stubborn, and resistant to what God is doing. And yet, despite that, God has been characteristically forgiving merciful, trustworthy, and steadfast, okay? If you wanted to sum up the entire Old Testament in a single sentence, you couldn't do much better than he remains faithful even when we are faithless. You see, in the very beginning of Genesis, God made particular and profound promises that everything that's just happened with Adam and Eve, everything that's tainted the world that we live in, everything that's bringing death and corruption and destruction, I will fix. And then you watch effectively as human beings constantly get in the way of that plan. As the people he selects to be participants in that plan do not live up to expectations or even agreements. You watch as constantly um, just the fallen nature of human life interferes and God has to miraculously, miraculously intervene. You watch as God has to constantly forgive and restore and begin again. In fact, much of what we're looking at tonight in the book of Numbers is effectively God's plan on pause because God's plan involves him bringing Israel to the promised land and they refuse to enter in. 
after, four, or after 11, uh, 11 weeks of watching God miraculously provide for them, after all of the 10 plagues of Egypt, after Mount Sinai and hearing the law given, they get to the land and they go, nope, this is too dangerous. This is too difficult. This is beyond us. We can't possibly do it. And for 40 years, they wander the wilderness. And if you will, there's a sense, and I mean this only in a sense, where God's plan is on hold. So then, what is Paul trying to tell us tonight? How then should we read the Old Testament? We should read it recognizing the commonality between those characters and us. Okay? Not in the fact that they do good things and we feel good about it because we do the same good things that they do as good things, but instead recognizing that they chose things that we assume we'd never choose. That they were... Um, filled with shortcomings that we would never attribute to ourselves, that they were tempted by things that we think are not an issue for us. And that's the danger that Paul wants to warn the Corinthians that identify as being strong. He's basically saying, have you not heard of the nation of Israel? Do you think you're the first ones to experience the benefits of a relationship with God? Do you not see the commonalities here? The um, Apostle James, who also writes a, a book in the New Testament, gives us a similar way to view scripture. He says that scripture operates as a mirror. And so when we look in a mirror, we can see if there's something wrong with us. If we've got something on our face, we can clean it and go away clean. Okay. Now, I think we'd all recognize that you can use a mirror in another way. You can use a mirror just to bask in your own glory and remind yourself once again of how attractive you are. And I'm not even saying there isn't a self-esteem sense that makes mirrors appropriate. But I think we'd all agree that if that's the primary and sole purpose of a mirror, there's a reason why we have the myth of Narcissus, right? We recognize that there's not just a narcissism present in being in love with your own reflection, but a danger, okay? Because it doesn't tell the whole story. But what a a mirror was made for and what a mirror really does is it shows you when something's wrong, when something's off, when your toupee is askew, right? When you forgot to, you know, get, get the lettuce out of your teeth, these types of things. And so James uses this illustration and he says the Bible operates in that way and then we go to Jesus, he cleans us, and then we can go our way, okay? And so what I'm telling you tonight is if you're not reading the Bible to see what's wrong with you, you're reading it wrong, okay? That's what it's for. That's its purpose. The danger for the church in Corinth is that they're pretty sure it's not a big deal. They're pretty sure that they're strong. They're totally self-confident that there's no danger that they're in. Like I said, they're presumptuous. And so Paul wants to use the Old Testament stories to bring forward and make clear um, that this idea that, um, that they are stronger or more competent um, is not a good way to think. Now, before we take a look at the passage itself, one last thing. Most commentators who who help us understand and write about uh, the books of the Bible, most of them say that the primary problem with the entire Corinthian church, the main theme, if you will, that Paul is trying to address, the issue that leads to all their other issues, is what they call an over-realized eschatology, which is just a fancy way of saying that they've taken everything that's promised in the Christian life that is still to come and are living as if they already have it. Okay? And so the sense that they have is the Christian life is one where you've already crossed the finish line. The Christian life is one where there's already peace and prosperity and victory. The Christian life is already one where you've entered into heaven, where you've been perfected, where there's no dangers or no temptations, no shortcomings, no lack of health or happiness because, because Jesus has done this thing. And what makes this such a temptation, such a danger, is it's it's almost right, okay? Because what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ is a dramatic change. The metaphors that the Bible uses are constantly dramatic, from darkness to light, from death to life, okay? But we also have to recognize that we have, um, we have a foretaste of the things to come, but it's just a foretaste, And so when the Bible talks about the Christian life in terms of the Holy Spirit, it says that one of the benefits of what God has done in Jesus Christ is he sent his spirit to dwell in us. 
And the way that Paul describes that is as a um, as being sealed in the Holy Spirit. And if I can update the metaphor a little bit, what he's recognizing is God imparting to us his Holy Spirit as Christians is a lot like somebody giving someone else an engagement ring. Okay? It doesn't mean that you're full-blown married and have all of the benefits of a married relationship, but it's a guarantee that there's a wedding on the horizon. Okay? And so we will read the end of Revelation. We will be with God. But for now, God is at the very least with us in the Holy Spirit, okay? And you could look at that in every way. Because Jesus died for us, both the Old Testament and the New proclaims there is such a thing as healing available to us. But not complete and final and perfect healing. Even those that Jesus raised from the dead were raised to die again, okay? And so the resurrection is something that we're already experiencing the benefits of, but they're not the complete benefits of. And we're always in danger of one of two things in the Christian life because of the nature of this thing, because God has began but not finished a work in your life, of minimalizing that and living as if God has done very little for you or maximizing it and forgetting the, the still true realities of the human life. That's why at the end of verse 11, notice what Paul says. He says, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Now, what I think Paul is saying here when he says on whom the end of the ages has come, he's recognizing the overlap here, okay? And so what he's trying to communicate is, yes, it is true that heaven has overflowed its banks and spilled into present life for the Christian. But it's also true that we still have one foot in a fallen world. It's also true that not the entire consequence of sin and the fall has been uprooted from our lives. And so as Christians, we straddle what was and what is to come. And so he's reminding them here, yes, there's differences. Old Testament and New Testament. Old Covenant and New Covenant. Israel anticipating the Messiah. The church responding to the coming of the Messiah. But there's still a good deal of overlap. There's still something here to learn, okay? And so once again, the danger is presumption. It's arrival. It's, it's assuming victory, okay? And so he starts to make his case by drawing a comparison between the people of Israel in the Old Testament and us as the church. This is what he says in verse 1. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Now, specifically, what he's talking about here uh, between the cloud and the sea, here, here's what he's talking about. In the wilderness wandering, in the Exodus narrative, God is present with Israel in the form of a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Okay, so the entirety of their time after leaving Egypt all the way until they enter the promised land, there is this big, visible, noticeable, constant reminder that God is present with them. It leads them so they know where to go. It hides them and protects them from the sun and from their enemies. It's, it's there and it's present and it's visible. And then when he mentions um, the sea here, that they all pass through the sea, this is the story of the parting of the waters of the Red Sea. Okay, And so after they leave Egypt, um, uh, Pharaoh has finally had enough and so he sends them out. Then he changes his mind and he sends an army after them and they end up with their backs to the Red Sea and with the Egyptian armies closing in. And Moses, uh, under the command of God, strikes or holds his staff over the water. The water parts, they walk through on dry ground and as the Egyptians follow, the water closes after them. That's the event he's pointing to here. But notice how he talks about it. What does he say in verse 2? And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. Okay? So he takes these two things that seem relatively different from general Christian experience. And he says there is, however, a similarity. And he uses this word baptism to draw the parallel. Now, He's going to go on to mention communion as well. And these are the two practices that Jesus gave the church to do. The two sacraments that he gave the church to do um, as Christians. And baptism is ultimately about identification. 
okay? So in baptism, we go into the water and we're submerged in the water and we come back out and in doing so, we identify with Jesus. We identify with his death, his burial, and resurrection. We recognize, according to Romans chapter 6, that there's a sense where when Jesus died on that cross, so did we. And there's a sense where he was buried and so were we. And there's a sense where because of that, as he was raised, we now have the newness of life that we can walk in. Okay, it's identification. And so what he says here is the presence of the cloud and the parting of the waters is also about identification with Moses. In fact, if you were to go back and read Numbers 14, where this takes place, you will see twice in the chapter it's emphasized why God is doing it. Because I'll spoil something for you. They don't end up in the Red Sea because somebody took a wrong turn. In fact, if you read a little bit earlier in the chapter, it, in, it specifically says that God intentionally led them to the Red Sea instead of taking the main road to the Promised Land. Okay, so he sets up this scenario to make a point. And twice in the chapter, it tells us that this is the point. One, so that they may know that I am God. And two, so that they know that Moses is my servant. Okay, and so the point of this whole Red Sea passing is to remind them that God is in control, that God is in charge, that he's stronger than their enemies, that he will take care of them, and that Moses is his appointed leader, appointed mouthpiece, appointed servant. And so Paul draws a parallel here and says, in part, walking through the Red Sea, they were becoming Moses' people. They were identifying with Moses and with the God of Moses. There's a sense where the nation of Israel becomes the nation of Israel at that point because they're no longer the slaves of Egypt, right? They're their own people group now. And so he says, Israel as well had a baptism. Now notice what he says next. Verse 3, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. Okay, what he's speaking of here is the fact that God miraculously provided for Israel as they passed through the wilderness. Okay, um, he did this in the form of manna for food, which was about as miraculous as miracles get. Okay, it's not just food falling from the sky, but food that doesn't behave like food, even if there was food that falls from the sky. Here's what I mean. Um, he tells them that it will not keep. So they can gather enough for the day, but not for two days. And if they try and store it, it will rot and be full of worms. And so they just should, should just trust that God's going to provide tomorrow and they'll gather enough for tomorrow, tomorrow. But then oddly, he says, also, I want you to start now in the wilderness honoring the Sabbath. So don't go out on the seventh day. Don't go out on the seventh day and gather afresh because there won't be any manna. Instead, on Friday night, gather, or on Friday morning, gather enough for two days. And oddly, it won't rot that night and you'll have enough for two days, okay? And so it's this tremendously miraculous way that God provides for Israel. And then he also mentions spiritual drink. Both at the beginning of the book of Numbers and at the end, you see God miraculously providing water for the people of Israel through Moses um, striking a rock, or in the second time, speaking to a rock, and basically a river coming out of the rock. Now, for scale, for both of these events, we're told at, uh, in the Exodus narrative about how many men make up Israel. If you add to that women and children, most scholars would say conservatively we're talking about two million people. Okay? This is why this is a big deal. Because between Egypt, which is right here, and Israel, I should do it this way so you can see. So the Mediterranean Sea is here. We have Egypt right here, and we have Israel over here. This area all here is the Arabian Desert, right? Okay, two million people traveling across a desert. Now, even the Bedouins today can't maintain tribes in the thousands, even though they know what they're doing, know where the wells are, have the livestock. Egypt, or, uh, the Israelites, remember, were just slaves, they have no livestock. They have nothing. They have the clothes on, the back, on their backs, and they walk into the wilderness, and so God miraculously provides for them. In fact, when it says here that they ate spiritual food and drank spiritual drink, it's probably not here that there was something spiritually nourishing about these things. Instead, the word spiritual is talking about the origin of these things and not the character of them. For example, later in the book, Paul will talk about spiritual gifts, and some of those gifts are like the gifts of service or the gifts of help or even administration. And those don't look miraculous, but they're still God-given. 
And so what he's recognizing here is that the provision is from God, but by talking about spiritual food and spiritual drink, it's already drawing our attention to communion. Before we look at that, though, we should look at one really fascinating statement he makes here um, at the end Um, at the end of verse 4. He says, They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now, two things. First, the rock that followed them is an interesting statement, is it not? And it is intriguing that if you look at rabbinical teaching prior to the coming of Jesus, they tried to figure this out too, because the, the reason it's so mysterious is We only have two occurrences in the narrative of a rock providing water, one at the beginning and one at the end, and let's just recognize that you can't quench a thirst for 40 years, okay? So somehow they're drinking along the way, and the rock is clearly the same rock even though they've been wandering all this time. And so some rabbis actually believed that the rock rolled behind Israel and traveled with them, okay? Um... Most likely, when Paul says that the rock followed them, he's not buying into this particular mythology or interpretation of this fact. As a side note, some other rabbis actually believed that it was a relatively small rock and that they carried it with them and tapped it like a keg when they needed to, okay? I don't think Paul is talking about either of those things. He's just recognizing the simple fact that rock A, rock B, any way that God provided, it was through The rock. It was through God's provision. That's what he's pointing to. And then he says something that's a lot crazier than a following rock. He says that rock was the Messiah. Okay. Now, if that was all the text we had apart from the rest of the Bible, that would be a profound statement. Okay. I have found the Messiah. It is a rock. But clearly what he's communicating here is the relationship, the correlation, the commonality between God taking care of the Israel in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament. You see, the Bible says, simply put, that there's only one Savior, that there's only one way of being saved, that there are two different dispensations. There is the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, but they really are saved in the same way. The only difference is where they fit on the timeline. And so Israelites and the Jews, all the way back to Abraham, were saved by looking forward to the promised Messiah in the same way that we're saved by looking back on the um, given Messiah, okay? And so what he's pointing to the fact, in fact, if you read the Old Testament carefully enough, you will see the presence of what some, sometimes commentators call the pre-incarnate Jesus, okay? The Jesus before the Bethlehem birth. And the reason why they're so comfortable saying something so strange is because it's actually the easiest way to explain what's happening in the Old Testament. For a Jewish understanding of God being just completely one, no Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, no Trinity, the Old Testament in some places is really difficult to read. If you read in in Genesis chapter 18 with the destruction of the Sodom and Gomorrah, it says, now the Lord, speaking of this person on earth, called to the Lord from heaven to rain down fire and brimstone, and so it was. And so it's like the Lord calling upon the Lord. It's a weird thing. Even Jesus picks up on this in one of David's psalms in his ministry. And he says, why does David call the Messiah his Lord, even though he's his, you know, great, 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 great grandson? And so there's these two lords in David's psalm. The presence of this is pointing to the reality that Paul just names here. And he says, it's Jesus. Of course, it's Jesus. You can study much more in that, but the point that Paul is trying to make is one of commonality. And so he says, they had a baptism, we have a baptism. They had spiritual food and drink, and we have communion. Okay, and so he's drawing this comparison because he wants us to understand, simply put, there's not that much different. In fact, there is one major difference that's worth noting, but it's not going to help you get away from this comparison tonight. Because let's just recognize that their baptism was profoundly, extremely visible, tangible, observable, undeniable, buried thousands of Egyptians in their chariots real, right? And it was also a constant. Every day they came out of their tents and miraculously manna that nobody knew where it came from or what it was composed of showed up and behaved just as the way God said it would. 
They lived by the miraculous hand of God. And we do have this assumption today that says, if I just had a deeper experience of God, if I was just more in touch with the miraculous, or even, well, I'm not going to be tempted by sin because God is using me in such a profound way. There are so many ways that we try and distance ourselves from the dangers of human life. And we forget the story in Israel. It's like, here, there's a very clear commandment from God, backed up with a miraculous presence and constant reminders that he's there. You have the direct consequence of sin, so it's not just known according to God, but known in direct experience. And still, what do we find? Day after day of grumbling, of unfaithfulness, of temptation, of failure. He says here, all of them experience these things. But notice how he finishes in verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And so what he says here is they all had this corporate experience of God's power and his presence. They all had the manifestations of what it meant to participate in God's community Israel. Baptized into Moses, ate the same spiritual food and drink. To move it forward for us, you can be a part of a church. You can be baptized. You can experience communion that's not going to set you apart from the dangers that we're talking about tonight. Now, it's possible here that the presumption that Paul is dealing with is that these people in this story assumed they were God's people and were wrong, as was proven by their carcasses in the wilderness. Right? God says, I'll take you to the promised land, but they never actually make it. As Paul says in the book of Romans, not all Israel is Israel. In the same way, we could recognize the same phenomenon today, that you could be very, uh, very participatory in a church. You could identify as a Christian and take the label. You could be baptized. In fact, Jesus says you could even preach his gospel and do miracles and still not actually know Jesus. And so believers and make-believers may be what he's talking about here, but I don't think so. Because when he says here that most of them were overthrown in the wilderness, he's being a little bit gracious. Of those two million, okay, of those two million, any of them that were the age of 20 or above when they refused to enter the promised land did not enter except for two. Not even Moses enters into the promised land. And if you read the story carefully, in fact, I could point to, and I'm not going to do so tonight, but I could point to direct instances where it declares this, you will discover that, yes, it's still real life, so sin has consequences, but that doesn't necessarily translate into a lack of or a loss of salvation. In other words, judgment in the temporal zone, consequence of sin, does not necessarily equal eternal judgment. So what I'm saying here is I think many of the people we encounter here in Israel, Moses included, we will know in heaven. But the danger that he's presenting here is not downplayed if you believe in what we call eternal security. One, because knowing that you're eternally secure is a dangerous game to play. That's why um, Paul says we should make our election sure. In other words, we should prove it. Okay? But second... Because there's a whole lot of life to live before you die or before Jesus returns or before the consummation of all things. There's a whole lot of life before heaven and that's a whole lot of time that sin can still wreak havoc in and through your life. Okay? That's why in another letter Paul says this. He says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you will also reap. If you sow unto the flesh corruption, you will reap death. If you sow unto the spirit, you will reap life. This is what he's saying. Every decision you make every day is like planting a seed. Don't be surprised when it sprouts and bears fruit. And so that presumption is the same thing. But more importantly here, it's not just don't think that sin won't hurt you. It's don't think that sin, sin won't be a temptation. Don't think that you're, you're bulletproof when it comes to sin. And he says just look at the history of Israel. Two million people. Constant reminders of the presence of God, hearing his voice and having a leader like Moses. And yet, only two of them enter in what God had promised for them. Only two of them receive the fullness of what God desired for them. 
So he looks at these examples, and that's what they are. He says in verse 6, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Where does he say the danger is? This is why presumption is so stupid. Okay? He says their problem was that they desired evil. Where does that put the problem? Out here? No, right here. Okay? That's the danger. And so the fact is, what the Bible calls your flesh your sinful nature, you bring that into the Christian life. And it's forgiven. And it's no longer ultimately empowered over you, enslaving you. You no longer have to do what it says, but that doesn't mean it's been silenced for good. I think all of us who identify as Christians know this to be the case. Okay? We experience things like temptation. The Bible does a lot of talking about things like temptation. But we're still prone to the same danger. Even in our own lives. How many times have you thought to yourself, I know that in the past I've done A, B, and C. I know that in the past I've even had a pattern of behavior, but this time it's different. Right? That's hard enough, and Paul wants us to do something more difficult. He wants us to look at the lives of other people to see a discernible pattern and have to say, we are just like them. Okay? So notice what he says here. He says, do not, verse 7, be idolaters as some of them were. As it was written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And so the first temptation here, he says, is idolatry. And uh, this is is where he's really starting to butt up against what's going on in the Corinthian church. Because the strong in the church are effectively saying, idolatry is not a problem for me. I know they're not really gods. I'm not going to be entangled in that anymore. I know Jesus is my Messiah. He's the one true God. And so I can be around and I can engage with and I can even participate in without any temptation to become an idolater. And Paul kind of stacks the deck and he goes back to the beginning. We know because he quotes here, we know exactly what particular instance of idolatry that he's referring to because Israel's history is full of idolatry. But he goes to the first one. And this is how it goes. Okay? As I mentioned earlier, when Israel is crossing the Red Sea and they enter into the wilderness, they camp at Mount Sinai and God kind of descends on the mountain for the giving of the law, the giving of the Ten Commandments. And so at first, God tries to speak directly to Israel and it's such a terrifying phenomenon that they beg him to stop and say, please just talk to Moses and he'll tell us what you say. And so Moses goes up the mountain and they're all hanging out down below and granted, Moses is gone for 40 days. Okay, but in the midst of 40 days, after this miraculous, undeniable deliverance from Israel, after, you know, everything that they've encountered and the fact that they're sitting next to a mountain that is literally on fire, they come to Aaron, Moses is number two, the high priest, and they say, look, we're not sure Moses is ever coming back. Will you please make us a God so we can worship it? And so he says, yeah, give me all your jewelry. And he forms this golden calf. And by the time Moses gets down the mountain, not only have they declared that this is the God that delivered them from, uh, from Egypt, but they're having a massive feast-turned-orgy in celebration. Okay, So this is not just a mistaken identity issue or, or idolatry in the sense of a physical representation of God like an icon. It's, it's actually ethical. Okay? It, it downward spirals very quickly. Now, I don't know about you, but it's so easy to read that story and go, really? But that's Paul's point. His point is, do you really think that you're somehow idolatry proof? Do you really think that the the deceitfulness of sin, of power, and of privilege, and of wealth, of success, do you think those are no longer temptations just because you know Jesus offers us something better? Too often we don't realize the subtleties of these things. And so it starts, it starts down the road. And we're not actually looking for a new God, but just something that's a little bit more tangible, something that's a little bit more physical, just some reason that I can know, right? And we start to, or like the Corinthians, well, I'm not going to enter in, I'm just going to be with them. I'm, I'm not going to worship, I'm just going to eat with them. And then it just goes down and down and down. Like I said, if any of you have ever struggled against a particular sin for long enough, and it doesn't matter if it's complaining or if it's sexual sin, you know that there's a pattern. And the pattern begins very early on. 
right? We all have early onset temptation disease. And the problem is, when we first start to encounter it, we act like it's not a big deal, like it's not a big temptation, like we've got this handled. Look at, uh, so look at the next one he mentions here. He says in verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. So here's what happens. Because of the advice uh, of a guy named Balaam, Israel's enemies call in the beautiful women of the Moabites to literally just dance on the boundaries of Israel's camp and invite them to worship. And the men, you know, drooling, follow these women into idolatrous worship, which includes ritual prostitution, okay? And so they're engaging in sexual immorality with these foreigners in worship of another god right on the fringes of their tent. And where it gets extreme is that a guy grabs one of these women by the hand, brings her into the center of town where they're having a meeting of just this issue, and takes her into his tent, okay? And it mentions here that 23,000 in that day were slain. That's through a plague, and, and it's an intense story, okay? What happens next is a guy named Phineas walks into that self-same tent and runs them both through in the midst of the act with a spear. And that puts the plague to, to its end. It's an intense story. But nobody the day before would have said, oh, that's, that's going to be how tomorrow goes. Right? Listen, guys, I, I know so many people who weren't looking for sin weren't looking for sexual immorality, who were hit like a Mack truck. But, but, what Paul is pointing to is that dangerous presumption that says, I'll stand, I won't be tempted, it's no big deal. I can be around that, I can watch that, it's not going to affect me. He continues here and he says next, Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. Do you see the parallel again? Who were they testing in the wilderness? He says here it was Jesus. What does it mean put Christ to the test? Okay. Well, we know because he goes on and he says, uh, and they were destroyed by serpents. And so here's what happens. Israel comes to, to, to Moses and they begin to complain and they just say, did God just bring us out in the wilderness to kill us? We're hungry, we're thirsty, there's nothing to eat, there's nothing to drink. And then they say something incredibly revealing. They say, and this manna is, I'm tired of it, okay? And so their complaint isn't even really honest. It's not that they're not being fed, right? And if any of you have children, you know what this looks like, where as soon as you start to press on the irrationality of what they say, they change tactics, okay? They're being little children. But why is it called putting God to the test? Because ultimately what they're doing is they're stepping into the judgment seat and putting God on trial and saying, you know, you're just not living up to what God should be doing. You're not providing in the way that you should. You're not taking care of me in the way that you should. You see, if in the human life it's God on the field and you with the scorecard, there's something wrong. And it's a, it's a dangerous scenario because it ultimately says God you are not good, and I am better. And so it's a very serious thing. And so what happens here is that these, they're labeled in the, in the, in the English of the Old Testament, fiery serpents come into camp and they start biting people and people are dying from poison. And so strangely, God, is, uh, God commands Moses to make a bronze image of a serpent, to put it on a pole, and he says, anyone who's been bitten and looks to that will be healed. And the plague is stopped. Then the final one he gives here. He says, verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and they were destroyed by the destroyer. Now this one's actually a little bit hard to nail down because grumbling is something that happens in the book of Numbers a lot. But it's worth noting here that we would generally not make a big deal about grumbling, right? About complaining, about a constant negative under our breath, you know, we, we would cover it up by saying, Look, I'm, I'm just being real or, or you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm just venting or these types of things. But the consequences for Israel in the wilderness are tremendously serious. Now, these things are written as examples not to put the fear of God in you, but to put the fear of grumbling in you. 
You see, there's a sense where every one of these happenings to Israel is saving them from something tremendously worse. But here's what happens. In this particular occasion, the one that Paul is talking about here because he mentions the destroyer is what we call the rebellion of Korah. And so here's what it looks like. Korah is this, this small family from one of the tribes, and they come forward and they go, look, we know there's the Levites, and they're supposed to be the priesthood, but we're just as good as the Levites, and we want to be the priesthood. And so they set up shop right next to the tabernacle and start effectively their own priesthood. And Moses says to everybody, he's like, I want everybody's attention, please. If all of these men in front of you die like normal men, then I am clearly not God's prophet, and I'm not the leader here. I don't speak for him. But if the earth opens up and swallows them, then you know that I am God's leader, and that's exactly what happens. That's not where the story ends. This is where it gets insane. The next day, another group comes up and says, we're really interested in what they had to say yesterday. We also would like to be priests. Okay? It seems insane. But we are so capable of the same thing. Aren't we? Aren't we capable of watching the consequences of sin play out in somebody else's life and we go, man, that's a terrible shame. And to even look down on them and think, I can't believe. I never knew they were the type of person. And then we are completely unaware of the fact that we follow into the same thing. And we go, you know, you know that, that trap right there, that cheese is looking pretty good. And I totally understand why they reached for it yesterday. And I'm going to reach for it today, but I'm not going to get caught. And so this time, a plague breaks out again. And on this occasion, Moses says, look, Aaron, grab a censer, go where the dead, because they're just falling in a line like a wave of plague across Israel. He says, go and stand between the dead and the living and hold your censer and pray. Intercede for Israel. And Aaron becomes the stopping place. He divides the end of the plague and the rest of the living. And so these stories are brought out, and they are intense, but Paul says they were written to instruct us. They were written as examples, and not just examples of what will happen to you, but this is who you are. This is what you're capable of. The story of the Bible is not an over-demanding God that people just can't live up to. It's an incredibly gracious God that people will not submit to. And so he lays out these dangers And what he wants to say to the church in Corinth is, don't be impressed with your strength. Don't be comfortable in your current standing. Don't be confident that everything's going to be fine because you've got this. In fact, notice how he puts it in verse 12. We'll look at this again next week, but it's a good summary. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he falls. Here's the point. For the Christian, Christian living never looks like self-ability. It never looks like self-confidence. It never looks like the self at all. The danger for the church in Corinth is they're thinking, Jesus has saved me, so now I can take care of myself. And what Paul is saying is, no, Jesus has saved you, and the only way you're going to get through today is if he continues to save you. The danger of presumption is because it puts the weight once again on your shoulders is because it assumes that you don't need a savior. Is it because it, it pretends that you are the victor, that you are the conqueror, that all of the spoils of war that Jesus has won, you actually could have done just as well, and so now you're going to continue to rule and to reign as a king. Here's the thing. There's a sense where presumption like this is much more dangerous than atheism. Because atheism knows that if there is a God, which it doesn't believe, then they don't know him. Presumption says, I'm fine. I already know him. This is more dangerous. This is more dangerous than just living in sin. Because a lot of times, sinners know that they can't escape this, that they can't help it. And for the presumptuous, they say, I'm safe. I can keep myself. I can handle this. The danger of presumption is is simply put, not just because it's prideful, it's because it's wrong. It's because you're viewing yourself as enough when you're not.
But there's a really encouraging thing in these four stories in Exodus 32 and Numbers 25 and Numbers 21 and Numbers 16 that Paul brings up. And it's that in each case, we see the same pattern. A completely terrible, sinful, unbelievable decision. A direct and terrible consequence. And then that consequence comes to the end because of a particular action of a particular person. So here's what happens in the beginning with the golden cow. Okay? They've made this. Moses comes down. He confronts them in this. And then he ascends the mountain again. And he prays and he intercedes for Israel. And he says, blot me out of your book of life and let them be forgiven. He puts himself, the only innocent one in Israel who wasn't there, right? He puts himself in their place and he says, chalk their sin up to my account. The reality is for us as Christians, there's a similarity here. There's an example. We have Jesus and that's exactly what Jesus did. Your sins, past, present, and even your future sins, Jesus already went to the cross and died for those and said, let me experience their punishment. Let me endure the consequences of their sin. Chalk it up to my account. In the second story, in Numbers 25, when they're tempted by the Moabites, Phineas comes in and he stops the plague by running a couple through with a spear. But Jesus is incredibly greater than that because he took the spear in his own side. And he stood and he said, this ends here. The reign and the power and the corruption of sin and death, it dies with me. In Numbers 21, when they're complaining about food and there's this bronze serpent, it's, it's weird, isn't it? All these serpents are biting and the same God who condemns them for making a golden calf commands them to make a golden serpent and anyone who looks to it will experience healing. But we discover in the New Testament, in the Gospel of John, that that was a picture of Jesus, that he becomes a personification of evil itself, of the serpent, that he takes that judgment upon himself and all who look to him will be healed. And even in the last story, the story of the Korah rebellion, Aaron, as the high priest of Israel, stands in the gap in intercession between the dead and the living. And that's what Jesus does. In fact, even for you, right now, the Bible says that Jesus is ever living to make intercession for his church. And so, when we are acquainted with our weakness, when we're not too stupid to presume we are strong because we're currently on our knees, remember Remember that that's only half of the example. Read Psalm 78. Read Psalm 106, and what you will discover is, yes, Israel has been unfaithful, but God's mercies are new every morning. Yes, Israel has not kept up their end of the bargain, but that hasn't kept God from keeping his end of the bargain. And to be honest, there is no greater reason to not presume in your own strength than to recognize the self-same God that is able to forgive is ready to deliver that he's a very present help in times of trouble. And the danger of presumption is like the sheep who knows his shepherd and goes, today I'm going to go play on my own. And there's no danger to the sheep who says, I'm going to stay close to the shepherd because he is my shepherd. He is my protection. He is my nourisher. He is my provider. Presumption and independence go hand in hand. And if you're not a Christian tonight, this is a really important clarification. We as Christians don't identify as those who have our acts together and are strong enough not to do bad stuff. We are too weak not to do bad stuff. And the good news is that Jesus was strong enough not just to take the punishment for that, but to give us his spirit, to give us his presence, to walk alongside us and not just save us from our past sin, but save us in the midst of this fallen world today and now. And the danger then for the Christian life is trying to do it alone. It's not retreating to our sins, but retreating to our self-righteousness. It's not just retreating to our stubborn choosing of our own way, but the independence says, I now know the right way to go and I can walk it on my own. And so Paul's call for the strong in Corinth is, don't presume that you've got it together. I don't remember what preacher put it this way. Some of you listen to more preachers than I do, so you'll probably remember. But the difference here is between the strong who are saying, tell me where the boundaries are because I want to experience as much as I can. 
And this preacher points out, he says, for me, if Jesus is at the center, that's where I want to be. I don't care where the boundaries are. I just want to be close to him. And we can all recognize in that metaphor, can't we, that, hey, there's a fence, there's a clear line, I should be able to play right next to it, and there's no temptation because the line is drawn, right? I've got my shot collar on. What could possibly happen? But that presumption is, is not just dangerous, it's wrong-headed. It says, the closer we get to sin without enduring it, the better life will be. And I'll tell you simply put, the closer you stay to Jesus, that's where the better life is found. Let's pray. Father, as it says in the hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Even self-reliance is a temptation for us. Even presumption is a temptation for us, Lord. We are weak, but you are strong. And we thank you, Lord, that we can stand firm because we stand on the rock. That we can be strong because your strength is perfected in our weakness. That you haven't just called us to walk a righteous life, but you've called us to lean on your righteousness, to rely on your empowerment for righteousness, to live life with your presence. And I pray that you'd teach us how to learn, not just from our own mistakes and the pattern of our own life and from the lives of others, but from your very word that was written to instruct us, to remind us that what's wrong with human nature is common to human nature. And that what we see in Israel is a lot more like us than we'd like to admit. And I thank you, Lord, that you call us to humility, not just not just because humility is some sort of arbitrary virtue, but because humility puts us in touch with the God who is glorious. It reminds us to reach out, to lean upon, to call upon, to rely upon the God that we need. I pray that you'd help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.